Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 14, 2018. The Share ID numbers for Friday, October 12th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,037, that's 12037. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,038, that's 12038. This morning, A Vision for You presents Let Go or Get Dragged. The way we manage our own lives brings us to the end of our rope. We hit bottom. Our ways and our efforts fail us. We are the architects of our own misery. We suffer with the juggernaut of self-will, and we suffer, and we suffer, until we have suffered enough to be willing to look for something better. What is that something better? The big book tells us this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. We could no longer insist on having our own way, on trying to control other people, on believing that we always know what's best for ourselves, the world, and everyone else. We had to develop humility. In order to do that, we had to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. The 12 steps as outlined in the big book represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a deep, profound, and lasting personal transformation. The actual solution to the problem of personal powerlessness and unmanageability is finding and establishing a relationship with power, a higher power. We are then taken from the world of self-will and self-reliance and self-sufficiency to a path of God-reliance. We have a choice to either let go or get dragged. Joining us today to speak on this very topic is Marsha B., a recovered compulsive overeater from Missouri. Marsha is devoted to our 12-step way of life and is eager to carry the message of recovery. And welcome to the line, Marsha B. Leah, can you hear me? I hear you well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to speak and um, to share some of my story. Uh, pardon my voice this morning. It's a little froggy, so I'm just going to take a minute here and just kind of center myself and allow God in. Uh, God and I have been constant companions recently. So, Okay. Um, one thing that is an essential and incontrovertible principle. First of all, I'm Marcia B. I'm a compulsive reader from St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, I've been in a member of OA since March of 1993. I haven't been recovered through most of that time, and uh, reason being is I'm a pretty slow learner, but I learned my lessons eventually. Um, so starting off with an essential and incontrovertible principle of OA's 12-step recovery is the absolute 100% admission that I do not have power over food and that my life was unmanageable. That's step one. 
and equally essential and equally incontrovertible is that a power greater than myself, whom I choose to call God, is required for me to maintain sobriety from my food addiction. Step two says that we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm sorry, step two said, I think I said step two. And step three, that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And this is where the work starts. We, we made a decision that God will direct our lives. And now it's time to put that into practical application immediately. Um, so the slogan, let go and let God, is in a nutshell, it embodies those first three steps. I'd heard an OE speaker sum it up more succinctly as let go or get dragged. Because quite honestly, if you're anything like me, I was at the crossroads of choosing to go in a completely new direction, one that required a leap of faith and a lot of discomfort and a lot of letting something greater than me take over and handle my difficulties, something I really didn't trust would do that, or continue to struggle and to push and to control and deny and damage my relationships with family and friends and people I work with, damage my body. In other words, be dragged through life until the bitter end because I would not let go of trying to fix things or of trying to make or trying to, you know, prevent something bad from happening or trying to make others happy so that I could make myself feel better. That's what it boils down to. It's two choices, struggle or surrender. Uh, on page 44 of the big book, it says, to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. And sometimes we hear chuckles in our meetings when we read that line. It is kind of a tragically funny line in, in some ways because as a compulsive reader, this choice isn't easy. But on its face, it should be very easy um, to, to, to go with God or to continue to do what I always what I've always done, uh, yeah, um, there is no third option here. Um, I had to admit, though, that my best thinking is what got me here. And the real difficult for me wasn't in recognizing the need for help, but in trusting that the help was there. So as I considered the idea of letting go, I, I pulled together some a few wonderful passages from AA's big book and AA's 12 and 12, and I'll be sprinkling these in here, there, in here and there as I go. But first, I'll tell you about myself a bit. Um, my relationship with food began when I was probably a toddler, maybe even earlier than that. It was an obsession as a preschooler. I recall lying about something when I was four years old so that I could get chocolate milk. Um, I would compete with my sister to be the first to lick the icing bowl when my mother was making brownies. I remember sitting there and willing the brownies to cool so that my mother could make the icing and so that I could lick the bowl clean when she was done. Uh, I had often at the time when I was a small child remarked to my mother that when I was older, I would buy that icing and I would eat it all myself. And I did not lie about that. I did when I was in college. I was the oldest of three kids. Uh, I had a pretty idyllic upbringing. I uh, lived in a great neighborhood with great friends and neighbors. Life was good, and I was loved. My mother was a fantastic cook, and 
food was love for her, and I was a fantastic eater. Uh, they had no problems with me being finicky, maybe except for eating beans. But I was marginally overweight in grade school, and, and I, it wasn't difficult for me to be active. I was out and about all the time. I was riding bikes and running around with friends and playing in backyards. But my weight was a problem for my parents. Um, and at eight years old, my father took me to a physician who prescribed amphetamines for me. Well, it helped to curb my hunger, but it also helped to curb a lot of my sleep patterns. Um, my father had a problem with weight too. He joked that a doctor was going to, the, the doctor we were both going to was going to be mad at him because he wasn't following the diet too closely. He was a loving, affectionate, playful man, and he also wanted to be a normal body weight. So we could relate to food problems together. After some time had passed, though, um, my parents decided that the amphetamines weren't the most ideal solution for an eight-year-old child. What a, what a concept. Instead, I was enrolled in a commercial weight loss program with other kids my age, and that didn't work out either, and it didn't work out the two times afterwards. But I will tell you, there's nothing more irritating to a 10-year-old than eating half a cantaloupe for her birthday instead of cake. Um, my father, in the meantime, he decided to try something new for his weight loss. He went to a doctor who was experimenting with a drastic surgery for weight loss. And my dad decided that he was going to do this. And I kind of idly wondered if maybe something like that would be helpful to me. But I was 11, and we really didn't think that that was appropriate. Um, so he went ahead and did that surgery, and then that was around the time of my tweens, and, and I entered middle school then, and, and in middle school, suddenly the world became very cruel and very dark, and my idyllic childhood became very, very, very hard. Uh, in seventh grade, I was bullied relentlessly on the bus, in the hallways, at school, in the classrooms, and on the bus ride home. I found myself at times eating lunch in a bathroom stall so I could get away from people at school. I would get off of the bus one street over so I could hurry home before the other kids knew where I lived. I stayed inside the house that year, practically became agoraphobic. I lost myself in fantasy and in food. But who really suffered, you know, apart from my gaining weight through all of this, my family did. I lashed out at my parents. Um, I lashed out at my siblings. At home, I was brooding. Um, I was misunderstood. I was always tearful and angry, and, and I raged. I hurt my siblings verbally and physically. And I also caused a lot of worry for my parents and a lot of anger and frustration for them. You know, why can't you just put down the food? Why can't you just stop eating? Well, this is just too much. You're outgrowing your clothes. What do you, you know, this, this has got to stop. And I would just lash right back at them. Uh, I was the tornado that's described in the big book that was roaring my way through the lives of my family. I lived under a cloud of rage and shame and self-loathing. And in my teens, I'm, I'm, I admit, I contemplated death often. Um, it may sound really strange, but thank God for food at that time. 
I, I don't know that I would have gotten through that time without it. It was, you know, paradoxically, it was the bane of my existence because I wanted so much to stop eating and to lose all this weight and be thin. And, and, and instead I was miserable and fat because I was eating so much of it, but it was also the balm for my anger and that fear and that regret. I mean, at 12 years old, I had utterly, completely and utterly powerless over food. It had become a God to me, only I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I had come to depend on it. I'd come, I would come home from school, sit down in front of the cookie jar, and just consume until I couldn't eat anymore, only in time for two hours later for dinner, and then go into snacking afterwards. I mentioned my father, his surgery. It was initially a success, and he'd lost a lot of weight, but he was showing signs of becoming ill while I was in middle school. He was hospitalized on and off for a period of years, um, and he spent weeks at a time in the hospital. And it was determined that his surgery had caused him to become so malnourished that his kidneys had failed, and he had to become, uh, he went on to kidney dialysis for a period of time. I was in my mid-teens and driving, and and I, in my selfishness, I preferred to be home in front of the television, eating rather than schlepping all the way to Midtown to spend an evening with my suffering and frightened father. And even when he wasn't home, there were many an unhappy uh, evening in our sumptuous home. Um, my weight was growing at a steady pace. I did have friends, and they didn't see the bad side of me. I was a people pleaser with them. Um, I gave them more slack and more thoughtfulness than I was willing to give my family. Uh, I needed desperately, desperately to be liked. So just a few short weeks after I graduated high school, my father, who'd received a kidney transplant, Less than two months prior, he died suddenly. Um, and I was left with my mother, who was an emotional and frightened wreck and a widow at 48. I was 17. I still didn't fully grasp the uh, emotional weight she was bearing. Um, I was selfish, what can I say? Um, her insecurities and her fears forced me to have her rely very heavily upon me to help out. But And I was there. I was ready to step in and handle things. And handle things, I sure did. Um, in the years following my dad's death, I ate and I ate and I ate. I started college. I assumed a new role of emotional supporter to my mom. And I resented it. My sister, she herself had decided to become a party girl. She turned to alcohol and pot, and I gone, and I was gone from college, or, or gone away to college. She enjoyed the company of others, other burnouts on a regular basis, and and caused my mother no end of grief and misery. Um, my brother was becoming an angrier and angrier and a bit of a troublemaker in the neighborhood. Um, whenever I could come home for the weekend or for a school break, 
I made sure that my mother knew everything that she was doing wrong, raising my younger sister and brother. Uh, When the roof roof leaked and she freaked out about the cost to fix it, I hauled my fat butt up on the roof and I patched it. When the toilet broke, I fixed it. When anything broke in the house, I was there and I was, and I had an opinion about anything else that I thought I could fix, including my family. And when my 14-year-old brother accidentally shot himself in the finger with a BB gun, my mother nearly had a panic attack about how she had no health insurance for him to go to the, the emergency room. Well, I just dragged him into the bathroom, squeezed the BB out of his finger, poured alcohol and ointment on it, and wrapped it and told him to stop playing with the gun in the house. That was me, a problem solver. I was a problem solver who resented having to solve problems. And I ate over it constantly. And this selfishness, this self-centeredness, and this need to control and fix continued into my adult life. Um, My excuse to binge, and I couldn't quite understand what it was at the time. My excuse was my own inability to shape and mold the world and everyone who was in it. Uh, I want, in the way that I wanted them to be. I thought that my happiness was dependent on people doing my will and circumstances going my way. I didn't have the first clue that the real power in letting go is abandoning this delusional idea that I can control or that I'm responsible for the world beyond my own small contributions. Um, The portion of the big book that describes me very well is on pages 60 and 61. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. I like to think of myself as that, but that's not exactly true. On the other hand, and this is more like me, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. So in my home, when things didn't go as I expected, especially when I was kind, considerate, patient, and generous. I ate over it. How dare things not come together after I was wonderful, after I had been so patient and giving, and I, I made all these arrangements, I planned all of this, and, and nobody appreciated it, and, and it didn't, didn't happen the way it should have, and, and, and what a victim I am. Well, and then when family disappointed me, those poor people, I was mean, selfish, I was dishonest, I was controlling, and I ate over that too. And what about God? Where was God in all of this for me? Well, when I was a little kid, I, had a, I thought I had a good relationship with God. I thought that God was a, a wonderful being out there who loved me and would take care of me. And all I had to do was ask him and pray to him, and, and, and he would grant me what I needed. And in this, you know, God was supposed to be the one to have fixed all of this for me. And and when I was a child, that was great. But when I was a teen and I prayed to God to fix my life, 
when I prayed to God to fix my body and to fix my eating, to help me to stop and be thin, I pleaded with him. I begged him. I cried into my pillow every night, desperate for a God that I thought all my, when I was a child was all love and all powerful to make things better for me. If only he would help me. I would praise his name and shout it from the rooftops. Hey, look at what God did for me. I wanted God to snap his magic fingers and make me thin and make my life worthwhile. But he didn't. So what good was he to me? I guess in my time, my reliance on God to make me thin, to make my life worthwhile, just kind of faded into the background. God's not going to do anything for me. He was neither loving nor powerful. And by the time I was an adult, my life was pretty much my own to fix. Well, not just my life, but mine and the lives of my family. I'd become something of an agnostic. Food was my God now. It gave me comfort. It gave me solace. It numbed my sadness and numbed my regret. And it filled my empty hours and the, the longing to you know, be, be married and have children of my own. Well, on page 49 of the big book, it, it says, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists chose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all. And that was my thinking. I was a pretty intelligent human being. I had a decent amount of common sense. And that was what was going to see me through. I, 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 because I'm so intelligent, of course people would listen to me. Why wouldn't they? I have strong opinions and, and good opinions about how everybody should handle their lives. And forget the arguments. Eventually they would see my way, wouldn't they? I mean, how could they not? My sister was dating an alcoholic. My mother was overly indulging my brother. There was just so many things going wrong in the house. And I was an adult living with my mother, trying to control all of this. Um, but again, my human intelligence, it was going to see me through. I would get on this amazing diet, and I would drop all of this weight, and my life was going to begin someday. Well, then someday did happen. I finally joined a commercial, another commercial weight loss program, and I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I was feeling great. I was feeling like there might be a chance that all of my hopes and dreams and wishes would finally come true. I was wearing cute clothes. I was putting on makeup. I was getting noticed. Um, and of course, to get all that all that weight gone and to keep it off, I binged and purged my way through much of that program. But that feeling, that, that, that first feeling of, of being attractive, of feeling attractive, feeling like I was a woman instead of just a blob of flesh, it seemed like maybe I would finally be able to date and, and marry and have children and have my own life and get out from under my mom's house and and then, and then in the midst of all of this, my mother died suddenly. Um, lots of sadness with that. Lots of sadness. Um, I, I truly 
truly felt the pain of, of the way I treated my mother. Um, I was the oldest. I was trying to keep the family together. My life was, had become chaotic and out of control even more. Um, my, my siblings were completely out of control. Um, my sister was married to her alcoholic boyfriend. My brother was a compulsive reader and in desperate need of anger management. And I was binging again. I was back on this to food. And I wasn't able to keep, even able to keep, even able to keep the weight off, uh, even with purging. And after several months of trying to keep the levy from breaking, it gave way. And I was just full blown back into the food. I was desperate and I was lonely. Uh, and I was back to hating myself for not having the willpower to keep the weight off. And then, so all alone in my house one night, I remember I was sitting on the floor of my kitchen. I was in tears on the phone with a dear friend and I was telling him all of my troubles and I was telling him about my mother dying and I was gaining weight back and he'd seen me thinner. And, and, and he finally he said to me, he said, you need to get some help. And those were the most loving words I'd heard um, at that time. And, and I knew he was right. I knew I needed help. I knew I was powerless. And I was just sitting there. There's nothing more. It's like that bitter morass <laughs> that stretched out for miles in front of me, in front of that kitchen floor. Um, I was completely and utterly powerless. I saw a therapist for the first time in my life, and she had diagnosed me as clinically depressed and that I had an eating disorder. Well, neither was really a surprise to me. And while my sister had some experience with a 12-step program, I, I wondered if OA might be in my future. I'd heard of it, but I never truly thought that that was my solution. I always thought that I was the one who had to handle this. Um, but through that treatment program, I was encouraged to go to Overeaters Anonymous, and eventually I did attend my first meeting in March of 1993. Well, just because you find Overeaters Anonymous doesn't mean you find recovery. You find wonderful friends, and I found a home group. Um, I, I, there were great people and loving people and recovered people in that room, that didn't mean that I was ready to go full-blown into the 12 steps. I mean, but I did find a lot of nice, wonderful people. Yay. Um, as I started to do a whole lot of service, uh, I, I made more friends and, and did fun things in the name of OA service. I, brought some, I bought the literature, including the big book. Never really cracked the big book. I found a sponsor. I never called her. I found another sponsor. I never called her. I found men I thought might be husband material. I attended meetings regularly. I listened to speakers. I worked a few of the steps here and there. I went to marathons. I went to conventions. I participated in entertainment. I wrote the newsletter. Um, I did service at the group level, the intergroup level. I did service at the regions and the world service level. Um, and I'd managed to get some physical recovery through all of this. And occasionally I had a sponsor for a time. But I wasn't recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. 
I hadn't read the doctor's opinion. Somebody much, much wiser than me had, had said in this meeting before, I was dieting with group support. It was the epitome of half measures. And I'm here to tell you half measures availed me nothing. So after about 12 years, I had decided that I figured it out. I figured, thought that I'd graduated OA. I, I figured that, okay, I've got this. I can take this and move on. I was going tired of the service. I was going tired of the meetings. I was going tired of the fellowship. And I picked up an obsession with an online community that had nothing to do with recovery and everything to do with science fiction, fantasy, and fiction writing. I was the, I was the opposite of the nine-step promises. I would know a new obsession and a new distraction. I would regret getting involved with this group and wish to take it all back. I lost my serenity and went along with fanatical personalities. I lost interest in my OA fellows and gained interest in selfish things like my own time and my own pleasure and OA be damned. My whole attitude and outlook on life reverted back to that of the fixated hermit who desperately wanted people I'd never met to like me. I took back sugar one day and that set me off on nearly four years of relapse. And at some point, I completely stopped going to meetings altogether. And not surprisingly, my weight rose back up. Now, the big book tells us this is a progressive disease. And in the chapter more about alcoholism, we read about the man of 30 who gave up his free drinking in order to succeed in business. After 25 years of being dry, he retired, took up drinking again, and was dead in four years. And the chapter reads, commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. And that was true for me. I had a period of abstinence at that time that was not perfect abstinence uh, because I was using other substances and I was playing with sugar. But I had never full-blown gone off the deep end like I had. Um, it was my intention at that point, when I, when I went off that deep end, I was only going to have one cookie. Only one. And that was all it took. Off came my carpet slippers. But thank God, thank God, after those four years, I was still here. Um, but I was nearly back to my top weight of 300 pounds. In retrospect, I look on that time as a blessing. I, I think that God gave me an opportunity to relive the pain to relive that insanity, uh, to relive the misery of compulsive reading uh, in that cycle of, of stopping at the store on the way home and picking up these things that I'm only going to have tonight because tomorrow is going to be different. Tomorrow I'm going to start over again. I'm going to be abstinent tomorrow. But then tomorrow came. I mean, I'd start off the day abstinent. By the end of the day, I was back at the grocery store buying more stuff eating it, swearing it off, doing the whole disease concept, that whole cycle of binging, swearing off, you know, binging, emerging remorseful, swearing off, and the mental obsession would kick in by the end of the day. Um, so I, I, I really needed, I, God gave me an opportunity 
to truly once again comprehend the futility and the fatality of this disease. And I guess I needed to learn it by practicing it again. And after four years, I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it anymore. I became desperate enough. I became an aunt. I wanted to be a part of my, this little child's life. I wanted to be healthy for her because God knows her parents were not. Um, again, me thinking that I could control this, but I, I knew where I needed to be. Um, and in January of 2009, I came back to OA. I gave up the sugar for what I pray is the last time. I returned to meetings with a, a whole new outlook. I was well and truly done. I added more food to my abstinence list as I went along, including white flour. And, and the disease concept after this period was so very clear to me in my mind. And I knew who I needed to be with. I knew I needed to return to OA. Um, in March of 2010, more than a year later, I made a decision that I had been wandering sponsorless in the desert of, of, you know, abstinence for too long. And being abstinent without working the sponsor, I knew that would not end well. Um, I sat in on a big book session at our local convention and heard someone I'd known for many years in my area talk passionately about the big book. She was our local big book thumper. And I couldn't deny what she was saying. What she was saying was the truth. It was the truth, and it was she was a messenger of my higher power because I needed to hear what she had to say. I wanted what she wanted, what, what she had, excuse me. I wanted to be recovered. I needed the unvarnished, uncomplicated truth of the big book. And my higher power was annoyingly clear, telling me in the back of my head that I needed to ask her to sponsor me. She's been my sponsor ever since and has kicked my butt through all 12 steps and helps me even today. In the big book on page 62, it says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. It's what I've been doing for practically my entire life, and I really sucked at it. My troubles were indeed of my own making and out of my own self-will run riot. The big book says, I must be rid of this selfishness. God makes that possible. And it goes on to say, God was doing, was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agent. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. I thought when I left OA, that I would be free, free to eat whatever I wanted, to decide when I wanted not to eat, to decide when I was going to, to practice abstinence. I thought that I was free, but I was not free. I was in bondage back to my God, to my old God, the God of food. But I had to realize, I had to, to finally admit after four years, it finally took me almost four years I was done playing God. For someone who believed that she was in control for 50 years, it's not an easy thing to let go of the reins and allow another to handle them. I often wanted 
take them back. Sometimes I still do, but there is such peace and surrender in allowing God to do his work for me anyway. Um, There's the the peace and falling backwards and, and knowing you're going to be caught and held and loved. And things may not be right right now, but they will be. And I'll eventually see the reasoning behind God's plan. My first few months of working the steps, I often had to go to page 417 of the big book. And it had, I had the acceptance prayer on my refrigerator. I had it at work. Um, but it helped to plug me into God. It helped, to, to, it helped me to hear him and to give him my trust. And it's really simple. And acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. So when I was agitated at work, I was able to remember that I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. And when my family was having problems, the acceptance prayer told me that nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Seriously, there's so much comfort in these words for me. They help me even today. There's a painful and difficult situation going on in my life right now. And yes, it's the F word, family. But that's life. And I'm doing the footwork to get through it. And I'm abstinent. The fact is, being recovered doesn't mean that life suddenly becomes smooth sailing with sunshine and rainbows every day. Life happens, and people are there, and they are fallible and flawed, and and they they can be disappointing, just like I am. There's there's heartache and there's hurt, there's fear, but as my relationship with my higher power grows, as my reliance on my higher power grows, these hard times are less frequent. They grow less intense, and they don't last nearly as long as they used to. The miracle is that I'm not the emotional zombie I was. I'm feeling everything. I'm feeling the discomfort. I'm feeling that that nervousness in my gut. I'm feeling it. I'm allowing it to be there. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with this. I'm not using food to soften that feeling. I'm not using food to numb that out. Definitely not pleasant. But I'd rather be feeling the pain and standing in the sunlight of spirit than hiding in a corner with all of my binge foods around me and pretending that life that that life is, is, is going to be better if only I can control it. I find myself still sometimes wanting to fix things. I admit it. But I've come to realize how exhausting that is. I'm a problem solver. When I've gone into job interviews, I will tell them right off, you know, I'm a problem solver. I like to understand the situation and offer solutions. And I'm good at that. And that's my, that, those are my guardrails. Those are the things that I can control. I can't control the people and I can't control the situations that happen uh, at work. And I most certainly can't control the situations going on with the family. I can provide support to some level, at some level, but ultimately I cannot change the people involved. 
and it's a hard, hard thing because, hey, the answers are there, but, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So, like I said, I may be a problem solver. I can patch a roof. I can fix a toilet, but I can't recover on my own. And I've made a decision that I need not only God in my life, but I, I need additional support from another 12-step program. Um, I've been working through some of these fears lately with my sponsor and with my higher power. And, and something else that gives me comfort is a passage from page 105 of AA's 12 and 12, where it says, Out of every season of grief or suffering, when the hand of God seems heavy, or even unjust. New lessons were living, were learned. New resources of courage were uncovered. And that finally, inescapably, the conviction came that God does move in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Letting go and letting God means that I must pray about a situation and leave the matter in God's hands. They're his results, not mine. I'm not perfect. And I'm relieved that the, the AA 12 and 12 on page 66 has this to say about that. No matter how far we have progressed, desires will always be found which oppose the grace of God. But I have better instincts now than I had because I've worked these steps, because I call my sponsor almost every single day and we talk. And I let her know what's going on when things are tough. Well, these better instincts, when something doesn't sit well with me, I, I feel it in my gut that something is not God's will, and I need to work through that. I ask myself, what am I supposed to learn from this? What would you, God, have me be? How can I be of service to you today and do your will in this situation? I once believed very strongly that I could shape my world and everyone and everything in it using my wit and my wisdom and my will. I believe strongly that if my family would listen to me and follow my very thoughtful and wise guidance with their decisions in their lives, they would be so much better off than they, are, than they are. I was playing God, and I was doing a very poor job. I was causing confusion and pain and hard feelings. I mentioned my siblings earlier. My younger brother and sister, um, my relationship with them growing up was terrible. I mean, with my sister and I, sometimes it would come to blows and certainly a lot of yelling and screaming in the house. We were a very loud family. Um, my brother was just a hellion. He was controlling and, and verbally violent and, and, and sometimes physically violent. I didn't like him very much. Um, and my sister became mentally ill. She, she developed a, a, a bipolar disorder and became, went from a very strong, independent person to a very clingy pain in the butt, <laughs> to be honest. Um, through working the steps, through recognizing my selfishness and my self-centeredness, my fears and all my character defects, I saw my part in our relationships. I saw how I contributed to, to their pain, 
how I contributed to their um, upbringing being such a difficult one. Um, I, I can't fix them. I'd like to. I'd like to show them the way. I'd like to show my brother what 12-step recovery and Overeaters Anonymous would be. I'd like him to be able to explore that, but he, he, he won't, and it's okay. You know, it, it, it will be what it will be. Um, but I, I, I love these people now. I mean, I hated them 25, 30 years ago. I just hated them. If I could just get rid of them and not have anything to do with them. And for a time I did, I just completely cut myself off from them. Um, but the fact is, is now my relationships, my relationships with each of them are 180 degrees different than they were. Um, I, I I love them and fiercely protective of them in many ways. Um, but my brother and I, we're closer than we've ever been in our lives. And that's because I learned for the most part to, to, to help him to make his own way to my, my sister, do her, do her own thing, make their own choices, learn from their own mistakes. This is a miracle of God. This is a miracle of the 12 steps. It's, I'm not perfect, but I sure have progressed. I'm very, very different than the person that I was before. Page 68 of the big book, it says, perhaps there's a better way. We think so. But we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? To me, that's a promise. That's a promise of the big book. When I rely on God, when I bring him into a situation that used to baffle me, I can match calamity with serenity. I, I, I love that phrase. Matching calamity with serenity. Yeah, you bring your calamity and I'll bring my serenity because I have God with me. Um, There's a saying I heard in an OA meeting many years ago. It goes, fear knocked on the door, faith answered, no one was there. Um, I have to remember that because the situation is pretty fearful right now. But I'm not in control of it. I never was. That was my own delusional thinking. That was me trying to control it, me trying to fix it, me taking responsibility for, for somebody or something situation getting better. Um, but that was me playing God. That was me trying to run the show. That was the actor. That was the one whose, whose plays never went off very well. And I became resentful, and I ate over it. Well, I've learned learned the wonderful, wonderful lesson. There is a God, and it is not me. And no matter what, I must pray to God. I must let go and let God step in and do what God does best. Or I can be dragged to the bitter end of my days, fighting, struggling, getting bruised metaphorically, and hurt. And I think I'd rather do the, the first. I'd rather let God step in and handle it. 
because so far he's been doing a pretty good job. And I guess with that, I will pass. Thank you so much, Marsha, for carrying this inspiring message of hope and possibility as a result of the 12 steps and a relationship with God. Thank you very much. The share ID for today's presentation, 12,041. That's 12041. And Marsha B's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question to Marsha by pressing star 1 to unmute. Give us your first name, first letter of your last name, please. Madam. KDG from Boston. Madam, KDG. Jody EQ. Jody EQ, I believe. Abby B. Abby B. Kathy C. Kathy C. Anyone else in this group? I'll take that as a no. Everybody mute, please, and let's hear from Matt M. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. Good morning, Marsha. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. I really related to a lot of the talk about family dysfunction and uh, dieting back and forth over the years. Um, Let me ask you something about if when you did your amends process, did you have to do, and if you did amends to your parents who are deceased, how did you do that, and um, what was the the process of you doing that? Yeah, I did forget. I I did make amends to my entire family, Um, and some of it was monetary. Uh, for for my brother and my sister, um, I, I did have to admit to them that I was controlling and I was a, a, a horrible horrible older sister to them and I didn't treat them well and and and, um, and in some cases I, I I stole money from them quite honestly it wasn't a whole heck of a lot but I I had to make those monetary amends I I had destroyed my brother's sunglasses so I had to make my <laughs> monetary amends to him um, with my parents. Um, I, I went to their graves and, uh, I had my letter prepared and I admitted what, what I had done to them in my letter. I just sat there in front of the grave. I, I wrote, um, you know, I was not, uh, a very kind daughter to you. I didn't appreciate you, especially for my father because my father died when I was 17 and he did not, I, I never got to know him. Uh, as a grown person, I never got to, uh, I never got out of that hellish teen year, teen years, so that I could really truly see in retrospect um, who I was and what I had done. So uh, with my dad, uh, who I grieved um, for many, many years after his death, it was a, um, it was a very heartfelt amends that I'm sorry I didn't. I was so selfish, and I was so sorry that I I didn't give him the time and the uh, love that he deserved. Um, and then, same thing for my mother. Um, even she died when I was 31, and um, I had to do the same for her. My life was 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 selfish, and and I was looking out for me, and and she was so fearful after all these years. And she felt her mortality after her first heart attack. Um, but my, I, I had to admit my selfishness to her. 
and that uh, I was sorry. I was sorry to both of them. And I made the amends that I was going to to work do better. I was going to, to do my best to try and have a healthy relationship with their other children, with my siblings, and to try and live a life that they would be proud of, that, that they would. So that's really how I made my amends to my to my parents and it's even as an aside I had to make an amends to my sister's ex-husband who had died uh in 1999 and uh, I drove all the way down to this cemetery in southwest Missouri and found his gravestone and made an amends to him because I tried to control their marriage um so Essentially, that was my uh, process. I made the amends. I admitted what I had done. I admitted the, the, the terrible things that I had done to people. And I, I said, I I've, I've admit that, that, that this was me. I, I was controlling. I was the one who's trying to, to make this situation different. And, and I'm sorry for it. I regret it. Uh, if I could do it over again, I, w- I would do differently but I was a different person now and I will do my best to not repeat doing that behavior to other people. Um, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm not perfect in that, but I am definitely better than I was and progress, not perfection is my motto these days. So I hope that helps Matt. Thank you, Madam, for the question. KDG, you're up. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Marsha. Thank you both for your tremendous service. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. Um, One of the questions I had I was hoping you could address, I hear a lot um, from people in relapse, um, and I said this for a long time too, like I turn it over and I take it back, I let go and I take it back. And so I guess I would, uh, my question for you is like, Let's say I'm a newcomer or I'm in relapse and I'm like, I'm, I'm letting it go, I'm letting it go. How would you address that from your experience? Like how, how do we, in the process of being in relapse, move to that point of letting go? And, and am, I, am I turning it over and, let it, and, and taking it back? Or if you could address that, that would be helpful. Thank you. Um. And I hope I understand the question correctly. Um, when I was in relapse, I mean, I spent a lot of days doing that. I played that game daily, daily. Today's going to be the day. Today's going to be the day. And, and, and it never happened. The, the, the time of day where that abstinence was to occur, it, it disappeared by the afternoon because I was obsessing about food. And that was a daily thing. I was daily in touch with my God, with my food. I was in daily, tu- in daily in touch with my God. And I was not in touch with my higher power at all. I was, I was, I was already, I was back worshiping the God that I knew, that I understood, that got me through my childhood, that got me through you know, all the stuff that went on in my life. It was when I finally, finally, I knew every single day that, that, that this was what I was doing to myself. I, I had enough, I have 12 years of, of, 
Overeaters Anonymous, and I know the steps, um, but I didn't really know recovery. I didn't really work the program the way the book tells us to, the way the big book, book tells us to. <clears throat> I was dieting with group support, but the thing is, is that I wasn't around the group anymore, and I wasn't going to meetings anymore, and I wasn't talking to people in the fellowship anymore. So I was on my own. I was trying to do it. I was trying to control it. I was trying to make it happen every single day, and every single day I failed. And it's it's a cycle. When you're stuck in a cycle, then nothing else can change it but you. Um, willingness. Willingness is a one-person job. And the willingness to put down the food one day is mine and mine alone. God cannot wave a magic wand and do that for me. That is my responsibility, and it will never be anybody else's responsibility. My responsibility today is put down the food. And then one day, one day in late 2008, I said, okay, I think I've learned, I've, I think I've learned that I'm powerless over this. If I'm powerless today, then today is the day I'm going to give up sugar and I'm not going to do it anymore. And I did. I stopped. I stopped putting sugar in my mouth. I did it for only one day. I told myself, just today, do it. And I white-knuckled it through one day. And then the next day I woke up and said, okay, just, just today, just today, I'm not going to eat sugar. Just today. And I got through another day. And then I did the same thing. I got through another day. And, yes, it was white knuckling it. For a very long time, I was trying to put myself in a frame of mind where I could see that perhaps I could do this. And I, and I needed to go back to OA. To, to boost me, to support me, to get me over the, that hump. So I did, I went back. I went back to meetings because, okay, three days of white-knuckling abstinence, I need to go back to OA. I need to go back to a meeting. I need, I need something. I need, I, need, I need to be around my fellows. I need to go back to my friends. And I need to throw myself upon the, you know, the 12-step program and say, okay, I went out. I did more research and development. I am still a compulsive reader. And I'm still an idiot around food. So I'm back and I'm humbled and I, I, I can't do it anymore. And that's what it was. It's, it's just, okay, if somebody keeps picking up, they're not ready. They're not ready. It's plain and simple. Um, you know, that's self-will. That I, am not, I, I, I am not willing to let go of this yet. When I am, I'm sure the fellowship will be here. But in the meantime, all right, I need to go through pain. I need to get dragged. I'm not willing to let go, so I'm going to get dragged. I'm going to be dragged through all through this process. There's two choices. There's not a third one. Let go. Let God. Let go or be dragged. And, and that was what it was for me. I was tired of dra- being dragged. And I, I hope that answers your question. Thank you, KDG. Jody EQ, you're up. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. Thank you, Marsha, for your share. Very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jody. I also have siblings, and uh, my parents are also dead. And um, I have one sister who may have some kind of mental illness. I'm not really sure. 
and she has been asking me for financial support. And um, I, it's, I, I find myself um, giving her some of that. So I'm just wondering if you've been in that position and if what, if what you have done about, about it, if you have. Thank you. My pleasure. You know, and it's interesting, Jody, because that's my sister's name. <laughs> and, and and my first question, my that's my brother's name. Matt's my brother's name. <laughs> so I must it must be something. God must be wanting to uh, must be wanting to talk to Matt and Jody today. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. My uh. My my relationship with my sister was very very complicated when she was um when she was first diagnosed in a mental illness. Mental illness is a very, very scary thing and probably not not something that, and I'm certainly not qualified to speak as a professional, just as a family member who experienced the pain of it. Um, I, uh, being a compulsive reader, how I handled it was, you're going to the hospital and you're going to get this and you're going to do this and you're going to blah, blah, blah. And you're going to be medicated. You're going to stay on the medication. And that was me. Um, there's a lot of that, that, that's fear speaking. That, that's fear because deep down inside, I I loved my sister very much, and I didn't want her to be in pain, and I didn't want her to suffer, and I didn't want her to to not have not be able to make a living for herself. This is a woman who was was so very very capable, and so I admired her so much in her her early twenties. She got herself a job. She bought herself a car. She she was doing everything right um, except for dating an alcoholic, <laughs> which I at the time was absolutely adamant was wrong. But it was supposed to be that way. But she anyway she she had she was doing so well, and then her illness really made itself known. And nothing is nothing is more devastating than um, dealing with a, a family member who is mentally ill because. It, 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 you just there's nothing you can do there's nothing you can do you are that is one thing will tell you you're powerless over is that and I was powerless over that but I really thought I could control it um uh, I I don't know uh, I, I have not helped my sister financially for many many years she's being cared for by the uh, government of the state of Missouri um and I'm glad for that. And um, she she did marry uh, a, a second time, so she is with um, a spouse, and they're they're he he and she are living on their own. I don't see her very often. They're not very um, they don't have a whole lot of money. And you know I, I I'm sorry that I don't see her, but I talk to her pretty frequently. Thank goodness for social media and. And thank goodness that uh, she, after many fits and starts, is now medically compliant and has taken care of herself. A lot of that was me having to employ things that I learned in a different 12-step program. Um, But I also had to learn it here in OA that, yeah, I I, am not God, that there is God and that he is not me. And um, so... At some point, I did have to let her go and trust that her higher power, that God was taking care of her too, um, 
did I was I not there for her when she needed? No, I was there. I helped I helped to get her hospitalized a few times. I helped her to get to doctor's appointments. I did what I could. I was not in a position financially to help her out very much, but I supported her in other ways. Um, in fact, I put a roof over her head for a few years too. So it, it just, it's, it's an individual thing. I, I, I wish I could, could help more with that, uh, but I understand <clears throat> what you're going through. And I, I'm, I pray that, uh, that she finds um, some ability to, to get, get some help for her, for herself and, and to, to be able to be sufficient on her own at some point. But I, I don't know if I helped, but yeah, uh, you did. But okay, <laughs> thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jody EQ, Abby B. Hi, this is Abby B. in St. Maryland. Um, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, thank you. Um, Matt, uh, there were several questions about nine-step amends that so it almost completely addressed mine. But I am on the ninth step now, writing out amends to people I think I need to make them to. But I'm, I'm dealing with family members, all of whom are living, but one who I have a, like a very tumultuous relationship with. I see my defects. I, I, I've been in programs for a long time. And I, and I try to practice the opposite. But now I've gotten to the place where the issue of making, uh, making um, concrete and direct amends. Can you talk about your actual experience in making amends to people who you continue to hold resentments towards? Thank you. Making amends to people I continue to hold resentments for? Yes. Okay. Well, um, actually, that's interesting because I really don't have resentments these days. I have fears. I have worries. I, I don't really have that. Many, I don't have resentments. Um, I, I, I took care of them. I, I, I and I, I, way back when I did my my nine step, and I, I, I sometimes do nine step amends when I'm when I do make mistakes I'm not perfect um but and when I when I've been working this I started working this program and started with the acceptance prayer acceptance is the answer to all my problems today this person cut me off in traffic am I gonna you know just just start road raging all the way to work that day because the person did that no um I can't do that anymore that's not how I'm supposed to live. That's the, that's not the practicing the opposite. Or that that's not practicing serenity. That's not letting go. You know, I, sometimes I have to thought, well, that person cut me off. Maybe they need to. Maybe they've got somebody in the hospital and need to get there. Um, maybe something is going on that I don't know. There, there's there's a reason why somebody cut me off in traffic, or there's a reason why um, this person at work um, said what he said and I can choose I have a choice in the matter I can choose to become upset by that I can choose to be angry in fact that's what I did often when I become angry it's because I've made a choice to become angry Uh, and there there are many 12-step speakers who've talked about you can't make me angry no one can make me angry I am the only person who is responsible for my emotions what they say is that um, 
Resentments are like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, that's that's what it is to me. Um, I I don't I, I I yeah people do things today and I, I I've done I, I've done steps on 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 things and when I feel agitated I stop and I do pause and I think about it. why am I agitated because being agitated to me these days is not a normal feeling for me anymore. It used to be something that I ran on constantly, constantly being agitated, constantly being worried, constantly being afraid and angry, um, constantly feeling in shame. But then, you know, at some point after doing my amends, I, ha- I had to decide, am I going to live my life with, with anger about people or am I going to figure out a different way? This, this, this step six and seven, when we say, when we say, um, you know, may direct, or I'm sorry, uh, when, when we talk about our character defects and, and we, we ask God to remove them all, I mean, I did, and this is what I have to do on a daily basis. If I am not at least acting as if God has removed a character defect of mine and replaced it with something else, then, yeah, I'm going to be practicing the old, the old stuff. So when I'm angry, I have to replace it with something else. I have to replace it with love. I mean, God doesn't, you know, I can't just leave a vacuum there. Um, so, you know, or, or at least some kind of ability to understand or to have some kind of compassion. Because boy, that poor person, my, my birth mother had sent me some cash in the mail. And, I, and that was a big mistake. But she, she sent me some cash in the mail and never came. You know, and it wasn't worth it to get angry about. I mean, it wasn't there. Okay, I wasn't supposed to have it. Perhaps the person who has it needed it. And I'm not going to be upset about it, and I'm not going to worry about it, and I'm not, you know, it's out there. Okay, that's life. Life happens, and I need to, (laughs) you can be the rock or you could be the water. And when you're the when you're the rock, you're hitting everything, and you're you know, getting chipped away and hurting. But if you're the water, you flow over all this stuff. And and I, I have to let this go because I'm not in control of everything. I mean, I, there are some things that I can control and some things that I cannot. And one thing that I I can do is I can let go of my anger far more quickly and, and far more healthfully than I have in the past. And, you know, it, yeah, occasionally some things do happen. And sometimes I do get a little, a little on edge about things. But then I know I have this, this instinct now that's been given to me through working this program where I need to stop and go, why are you raging inside like this? What's going on? And I do a quick inventory. And if I have to, in the evening, I talk about it with my sponsor. So this happened today, and I can't believe I, I responded like this. Um, and I work through it, and I realize that's me. That's me. I, I decided to go down that path. I decided to choose to have that emotion. Now, what, do I, what is it about me? What character defect is that mine that I need to give to God and practice the opposite of? So I, I, when I, I, I tr- truly do not have resentments about some people these days. I have fears still. But... Through God, you know, I have to trust that God knows what God is doing and that, you know, it's going to be okay because, quite honestly, history has shown me that things have 
things are okay if I would just get out of the way. So I hope that helps. Um, that's fantastic. I really was asking about when you did your nine steps or what oh. you said about your actual nine steps to people who you were in that present time resentful for and had a very difficult relationship. But I don't want to take somebody else's time unless you oh. have a question. Oh, I apologize. It was great. Okay. I'll, I'll try to answer that. Um, the, by the time that I was doing my ninth step amends, I think I was so humbled and humiliated and just mostly the, the resentment part was just the shame, the shame of being so resentful, the shame of being so, um, of, of reacting so badly and in such a way that was destructive. And, and so for me, when I was doing my ninth step amends, uh, with people, the, 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 the real, the real feeling at the time was humility and shame and, you know, fear that, um, you know, that, that what that other person was going to say, but I had to trust, I had to trust God. I had to trust that this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, Hey, look at what these steps have done for other people. People found recovery. People found serenity. I wanted what they had. So I had to do what they did. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it takes courage to walk up to somebody that you just absolutely hated and say, Hey, you know what? I've really not been uh, a good person lately. I, I, I get, I've been very angry and I've been, been very short with you and I'm, I deeply regret it. And I, I do want a better relationship. And I, 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 I'm sorry that I, I said these things and I'm sorry that I, I that I, um, that I felt these things as, you know, something you can't say to people because you will cause more, more harm. But if it's pretty obvious that your anger is causing tension, then that's what, what has to be done. But if, if you walk up to somebody and say, Hey, you know, I'm really mad at you because of blah, 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 then you're, you're just causing more harm. But yes, we, we, we make, when clearly we have caused harm and clearly we have uh, hurt people, that's where the amends is going to be the most effective. And that's where I, um, I, I the, sh- the feeling that I had wasn't resentment at, anymore because I understood that was my character defect at play. So it became a matter of shame and humbleness. And so that's, that's where I was. I wasn't so much angry anymore as I was ashamed of my behavior and wanting to make things better and wanting to change the relationship with that person. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Abby B., for the question. Mm -hmm. Kathy C., your turn. Star one uh, mute. Thank you. Good morning, Maggie Heard. Yes, I hear you. Thank you. Thank you for your service, Leah and Marcia. Thank you for your great presentation this morning. So inspiring. Um, I'd like to know, how do you keep a spiritually fit? Like, what is your daily spiritual practice? Can you just share a little bit, you know, how you go about your day, staying connected? Thank you. Sure. Sure. Well, in the morning, I get up, uh, get out of my bed, and I just just sit there quietly. I, I find a chair, I sit there quietly, and I just try to bring God into my day. I just, God... Um, one of those 
it's another one of those days, it's a Monday or it's a, a weekend or whatever. Help me to be of service today. Help me to be humble. Help me to stay abstinent and do your will and help me to um, overcome any obstacles that, uh, that I might have to, to deal with abstinently and with love. And so I sit there in that prayer and I sit there in some meditation and uh, that's pretty much how I start my day. It's not very long. I don't, for me, uh, you know, it doesn't require in an hour of, um, you know, a, a whole lot, but just sometime. I mean, I owe God at least, at least five minutes of my day. And often it's more than that. But um, I sit there quietly and, and with God and I, and I, I just, allow God in. I, I need it more these days because of this, this, this crisis that I'm dealing with. Not only crisis, but the situation I'm dealing with right now. But I invite God into my day and, um, and ask him, you know, what would you have me be today? How would you have me help someone, be helpful to someone today? And then during the day, if I need that extra boost, I pause and I ask for God's direction. I ask for, 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 understanding a situation that might be a little confusing or a little odd, or if I'm feeling a little weird about something, taking a, a deep breath and slowing down and bringing God in. Um, I try to keep little things uh, around me at work that, that help, help give me those messages that help give me, um, help give me a boost. It um, helps give me a little booster shot during the day. Um, and then, and then I, talk over things with my sponsor um, in the evenings, usually when we can connect with each other. And, uh, and then at night, I thank God for the day. I thank God for showing me new things and, 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 and helping me to be helpful to other people if I have been. And I try to do the, the, the inventory and make sure that I didn't own amends. So I, I just want to keep that, that connection going. And I'm, I'm working harder and harder at building that. And, and, and it's better than it has been. Um, it's not as good as it will be. But um, this 12-step program is about ego reduction. It's about me, you know, making my ego smaller and bringing God more into the situation and making making my day more about what God wants me to be. It's it's not always easy because <laughs> there are earthly things happening and some things are very scary. But I know, like I said, I know that God is there and all I need to do is call on him. And um, it, it's gotten better. It gets easier. And as long as I re- remain clean and abstinent, uh, I do those little mental and uh, spiritual push-ups uh, more and more just because I know that I can't do it without it, without God. I cannot do this without God at all. Thank you, Kathy C., for the question. We can take two more questions this morning. Star one ton. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Patricia B. Stephanie. And Patricia. Excellent. Stephanie and Stima M. Stephanie, go right ahead. Please include the first letter of your last name. Um, Stephanie T. Excellent. Go right ahead with your question. Uh, thank you um, very much, Jody. And uh, in my mind, I was like saying, 
oh, that ain't me. And I know in my spirit, all of that which you, your story was is definitely my situation right now. And, um, yeah, and the shame and... Yeah, my 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 um present sponsor, he, he says you got the food down, but you're not serene. He called me staunt, ra- staunt raving abstinent. <laughs> you know, and that's what I am. I mean, food down, but every emotion up, and um trying to do the steps and that type of thing. I mean, one of the questions was um, you know, how to get out of how to separate from my family. I have this, like, codependency with my family. And I need to move out. My higher power says I need to move out. I need to have my own, because it is really for my spiritual progress and to be the person that God wants me to be. And I'm stifled mainly because of my own stubbornness or I think it's because of my stubbornness or my lack of belief that my sisters will be all right. So um, how to get out of a, I guess, how to get out of an abusive situation, whether it's your abusive a situation, abusive relationship with yourself or abusive relationship with your family members. It was, was that was a question. Um, oh, uh, 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 can you can you restate it? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. How to get out of an abusive relationship? Oh, that's not my. Um, that's not my experience in life. I, I've, I, I'm a pretty strong-willed person, and, and, and I guess it, it, in, when I was not, when I was not serene, <laughs> when I was still in the food, I, for me, getting out of an abusive situation would be. I, I, I don't take that. I don't take that crap very well. I, 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 I've been abused for in, in school and, and bullied in school for so many. So I just, if I didn't like a situation, I was gone. I just left. It was not a hard choice for me, but um, I, I didn't really have. So I, I didn't really have an experience where I could say that that um, my situation was more of a self-abuse situation. I was abusing myself, and the only way for me to get out of that situation was to let God in and to get myself out of the equation. I was my own abuser. I don't know if that was helpful or not, but my my experience, I'm not in a, I'm not in an abusive situation, and I never have been. Thank you, Stephanie T, for the question. Okay, Patricia, your turn. Please include the first letter of your last name as well. Can you, can you hear me? I do hear you. Okay, great. Um, my question is about um, <clears throat> I am getting ready to go visit my 97- and 98-year-old parents who live quite far away, and um and I'm working on my amends to them. And um, they are both mentally fit. My mother has severe hearing loss, so I'll do a lot of things in writing, but able to listen to her. But I I have some confusion, I guess, about um, um, what, what it is that... I don't want to hurt them at this point in their life. And so I don't know if there's anything you could say about that. 
Well, <clears throat> my parents, my dad died at 47. And my mom died at 62. Um, my, my parents are, uh, were not elderly. They were of sound mind at the times of their death. And, um, I, I mean, if there's something, if there's some knowledge they don't have that would hurt them if they had it, then, then perhaps that's not something to, to discuss with them. If there is, there is, uh, there's behaviors that you regret that they are fully aware of and they remember clearly and you want to, and you want to make amends for that behavior or apologize for that behavior. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that there's, there's a living amends in that, you, you know, in, in, in the behaviors that you don't know or, or that, that they don't know about, uh, you don't do that anymore or, or it's, if it's, if it's not going to harm them and they already know about it, then make the amends for it. They already know that, yes, you stole money from them. But you know what? I stole money from you and I'm very sorry. But, you know, if, if you had an affair with somebody, I, and I don't know anything about, I'm just putting an example out there. If you had an affair with somebody that they know and they don't know about it and they don't anything, there's no point in bringing that up, that the, the, the situation between you and the person you had the affair with and maybe the people that are in their lives that in your life that were affected by it. But um, I would not want to cause more harm by, causing, by, by making amends for something that somebody is completely unaware of. Like for with my siblings, you know, I physically harmed you. I emotionally harmed you. I yelled at you. I broke your, you know, I, I, I broke my brother's sunglasses in half. I, I stole from you. I took, you know, I, we had a $700 life insurance policy from my mother, and I took the money and I didn't share it. But I, made, I had to make the, I had to complain with that. I had to complain with that because I harmed myself by doing that, and I harmed my relationship with them. So I made the monetary amends. And I made, you know, the amends for breaking my brother's, I gave him money for breaking his glasses. I, um, I mean, these were things that they were aware of. They, they were aware that I did that. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but for things that, you know, uh, that they weren't aware of, that they never needed to know, that would not, I mean, I, I, I um, there's just no point in causing more harm. It's just it, for something that they were not aware of. That, that's a living amends. That's something where I change the behavior. I will not do that again. If I was having an affair, then I stop having the affair. I change, I, I change that. I, I stopped doing the, the unkind thing. I stopped, I stopped the behavior. And that's my living amends. Um, and if they don't know about it, that's all you can do is make the living amends. And, and and be a different person. Practice the opposite of that. If if you're, I don't I don't know your situation. I know your parents are elderly. Um, so uh, um, uh, beyond that, I, I would say just just apologize for the things that they're aware of. That's or you know make the amends for that. You know, tell them uh, I've learned a lot from that. I've, um, you know, here's what I did. You know I did it. I am dreadfully sorry for causing the harm. 
to you and not just uh, not just I apologize or I am sorry for any harm I might have caused you. It's I am sorry for causing harm to you. And that is a true admission. Not I'm sorry for, you know, if I might have hurt your feelings. No, 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 that's not a mess. That's a, well, you know, I, I don't really care about your feelings. This is I am truly sorry that I hurt you because I did hurt them. Um, so, yes, if you cause harm and they know it, talk about it, you know, admit it um, and, and, and apologize for the harm that you caused them. And with the, with, the, with the also explanation that I do not do that anymore. I am a different person. Um, you can bring God into it if you like, if that's something that they enjoy. I, I, I don't know, but uh, that's how I did it. I had, my sponsor had a, some, something of a structure about how amends should be. Admit what you did. Say you're sorry for it. Uh, sorry for the harm that you caused. Make the amends and change the behavior. So that's pretty much it. I hope I, I don't know if that was helpful or not. Thank you, Patricia. And thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. It's now ten o'clock and so we will close. Thank you so much, Marcia, for your profound presentation this morning, your personal insights and experience. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate your service, Leah. Always a delight to hear such recovery on the line. Thank you so much. We're going to close from page 164. You're going to find it in your text in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.